Well, good morning. Parting is such sweet sorrow, they say. Indeed. This morning I want to share with you um, the only speech in the book of Acts given to Christians. All other speeches are given to unbelievers urging them to come to Christ. And here, the Apostle Paul in what is uh, a beautiful speech says goodbye. And not goodbye. And we'll explain hopefully what that means. That's preacher talk, sorry. So let's look at God's Word. It's a, it's a long passage, but it's well worth the read, I promise. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God and repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Himself, who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all went and they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers, flowers fade. God's word stands forever. Pray with me. Lord, in these few moments, would you reveal yourself to us through your apostles' words? Thanking you, Lord, that you've preserved these most intimate moments for us to share in, to be encouraged by. To give us the language, Lord, of departures. 
And we pray that you would indeed, Lord, reveal your Holy Spirit to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one thing you have to keep in mind when you read the book of Acts is it's not about you and me directly first. A lot of churches make a big mistake. They see things going on in the book of Acts and say, oh, we have to do that too. Here's a real dangerous passage, for instance. I could read this and you maybe take away thinking I'm speaking of myself as the Apostle Paul. <laughs> nope. Not hardly. Or that he's addressing your elders like he's doing here. What you do with the book of Acts, though, is you're able to sift out what is eternally true. And in this speech that Paul gives, there are amazing words, almost like a prayer, almost as if in his time with them, he's passing on to them, here's kind of what you need to have. And it's true in all, all times and in all places. Last words tend to be among the most important that you will ever speak or hear. There's some funny ones in history. Socrates, his last words, I drank what? <laughs> he was made to drink poison to die. That's a joke. Edward VI of England, the son, the final son, the, the son that Henry VIII had so desperately sought, his last words supposedly were, Dear Lord, deliver me from this miserable, wretched life. That'll win him. <laughs> Here Paul gives some final words. Words to these people that he's lived amongst and were precious to him. He, he planted their church and they got used to seeing him around. And the interesting thing here is that Paul becomes this embodiment that we can never, ever, ever tame God. The moment we have God and his trajectories figured out, the, the moment we say this is the way things are just supposed to fall in place, the Lord will always throw a wrinkle in that for our good and His glory. And that's what He does here. Paul is announcing that he has to depart. The Spirit has told him it's time to go. And of course they don't want him to go. But in that tear-filled moment, and it is so precious, Paul kind of leaves behind a few nuggets it's hard from this passage to get point to point because it's a, it's a large chunk of Scripture, but there are some couplets, that is, things Paul repeats. And when you repeat something, it has a meaning. It's meant to be taken with um, weight. Three places he has a repetition of something he wants to communicate to them. The first has to do with tears. Verses 19-31. Look at 19. I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing. Verse 31. Be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Isn't it remarkable that the Apostle Paul emphasizes tears as being a hallmark of his ministry amongst the Ephesians. What is he communicating to these elders through his own example? Well, he's communicating to them that one of the things he wants to leave behind that they will take up the mantle for is to be a church of compassion and concern. 
Think about it. Paul is speaking literally about in the face of opposition, in the face of his enemies, his response were tears. That's significant. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to be marked by anger, but tears. It beholds all of the things that we might count to be enemies of truth, enemies of the gospel, enemies of God, but it doesn't hold them over the flames of hell with joy, but with tears and compassion. Paul here mimics, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who it is said, wept. And even before his crucifixion, stood over the landscape of Jerusalem and poured out his heart in tears for them. People who had literally abused him. It was with tears. So one thing Paul passes on to the church that we will hold on to dearly, even even on this day, is to remember that the church of Jesus Christ is one as it looks at the world with compassionate concern. The second couplet has to do with, well, courage. Verse 20 and 21. He says, you know that I have not hesitated. I've not drawn back. I've not said what is unnecessary, but what is particularly helpful to you. And the message that I have for the world, he says in verse 21, is I've declared repentance and faith. That takes courage. Verses 27 and 28, he repeats that theme. I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of God which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul says both times, I've not hesitated. There is a specific message that requires courage in the face of opposition. And Paul lays it out. The message of repentance and the message of faith. That is, the Gospel itself. What in one hand, verse 21, seems like the most exclusive and offensive of all statements that requires courage. And yet at the same time, because of the Lord Jesus, it's the most inclusive message of all. It's sharing the good news with those who wish not to hear it. Paul would say to us that yes, there is a compassionate concern that you need to cling to. And yet, at the same time, to be a church means that you will have to have courage to maintain the message of calling men and women to repentance. That's interesting and important. Tell a man that God loves him just as he is. He will embrace you. Tell a man that God does not love you the way you are, but in spite of you, calling you to repentance and to throw your life upon the Lord Jesus. That will require courage. Finally, he says in verse 24 and in verse 32, something about the clarity of the message. Compassion. Courage. Clarity. In verse 24, he tells us what we are to be about. 
However, he says, I consider my life worth nothing. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Verse 32, now I commit to God and to the word of his grace. What he passes on, the the content, the thing the church is to be about is to transfer the message of God's grace. It is grace that is what to be uh, something of a marvel to us. God does not look upon us as we deserve, nor treat us as we earn. He treats us as enemies whom He's embraced with love. He forgives us despite the fact that we deserve no forgiveness. And He embraces what should not be embraced. That is grace. In verse 29, the reason He emphasizes this grace is because He says, there are wolves amongst you. And there are wolves, He says, even now in the midst of you. What are the wolves? What is the message that the church must continue to hammer on to keep at bay the wolves? What are the wolves? It's very easy, very easy to think with the climate of our social media and news and culture that it must be something you're going to see come through the front doors. Something so brash, something so bold. But that's not it. Paul always dealt with two tragic heresies in every church. They existed in every letter he wrote. It was a constant battle. The wolves we will always be fighting against are legalism and license. The grace of God speaks to both of those. The grace of God says that if you're one who believes that through your morality, your good citizenship, he's just a good fellow, that you're going to win God's smile and favor, think again. You require the same mechanisms of salvation as the worst who's ever lived. But to forget that grace means that you will and I will quickly turn this thing we call Jesus into a game where by what I'm able to accomplish and by the good I'm able to do, I can celebrate myself while simultaneously tearing others down. That's the legalist spirit. It lives out of a sense of guilt for everything trying to keep up with the demands of God, not recognizing the demands of God are meant to send us fleeing to the cross for mercy, we beg. But grace also speaks against the other extreme. A lot of the churches Paul dealt with, they heard the message of God's loving forgiveness and they immediately translated that into now I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want. It is God's job to forgive me. I like to sin. Therefore, I've got the best of both worlds. And that is not what grace leads to. Grace is meant to be this stunning moment of rescue. Rescue leading us to repentance and trust in Christ. So you have here in this small, short message an embodiment of Paul's mindset as he parts ways with these people. 
You, the church, he says, be a people of compassion, concern, but with compassion, a people of tears. As you look at the things that are disagreeable to truth, as you, as you encounter those things in our midst which are against God, cry, mourn, weep. And then speak. The church will always be courageous as it proclaims, as he says, the whole will of God, not parts, not those that are favorable, not those that make us smile or feel warm, but those that bring to bear upon us the truth of God. And then, of course, what would that truth be? How do you reach believers? How do you reach unbelievers at the same time? You preach grace. Reminding believers why they're believers in the first place. Not because of their family. Not because of their upbringing. Not because of what they assent to. But because God has shown mercy to them. That same grace wins over the unbelievers because they cannot believe life is not. You get what you give. The unbelieving world has no concept of grace, only karma. And here God stuns us. These messages are important, I think, because Paul says something in here that lets us in on something. I don't know how you think about church. I don't know what goes on in your mind and heart when you think of church. But what Paul zeroes in on here is a little hint into how the Lord Jesus thinks of you. And this makes all the difference in the world. How much does Jesus invest in His church? How far would he go? How, how, what does he think of the church when he thinks of it? I'll be honest. It's often in my heart when I think church, it can be disparaging. Maybe even cynical. Maybe experiences lead you to even question the necessity of something called the church. But verse 28 he tells them to keep watch over the flock. He says, be shepherds of the church of God, which Jesus bought with His blood. When you consider your role at Faith Presbyterian Church, it would be awesome if you started there. I've been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus this is not merely some institution to which I periodically participate. I am part of what God is up to in the world throughout all of time and space. It is big. It is important. It is major. That's how Jesus sees the church. And Paul is pushing that upon them. Why? Because he's leaving. He's going to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, and it ain't going to be far down the road that he's going to be executed. And there is a sense, no doubt, where these Ephesians had kind of wrapped up 
their understanding of the church in Paul, in his ministry, in his effectiveness, maybe even in his pastoral care for them. And now he's gone. What now? And what Paul is leaving with them is, well, you've got it all. You, you are the church, and God is pleased to use you to communicate these things to a world that is dying and being redeemed in the hands of the Almighty God. If I can put it in language like this, imagine you're in a race. And you're lined up with all of the great thinkers and movements in world history. Plato and Aristotle, Adam Smith, Isaac Newton. Think about all the famous people of Albert Einstein. The power brokers, they're all in line with you. And you can look at yourself and think, well, I don't matter compared to them. I'm insignificant in light of who I'm standing in line with. And there you see Jesus with the baton of truth, with the baton of grace, with the baton of life. Who's He going to pick to put that baton into whose hands will He, he leave it? And lo and behold, surprise, you've already let your hands down knowing it's not you, and He puts that in your hand. That's what Paul's saying. The least of all people God is using to literally overthrow the world, to overturn it with His grace. How will they do that? They will exhibit compassion and concern for the lost. They will, of course, be a people of courage. Courage which doesn't have to be rage, by the way. Simply truth. Standing ground. And that truth with a million and one messages that you could hear in a church when your pastor begins, whoever that may be, to preach sermons about Christian recycling, Christian fatherhood, divorced from grace, when it's just those kinds of things, be warned. It is grace. It is the gospel. It is the good news. Let me take this occasion to just express to you personal love and affection to each of you. Um, <clears throat> my whole life is wrapped up in this church. Um, I, I can recall running in the hallways of the old church as a child. And I remember when the denominations split and we had to go meet at Whitworth College at the time. It's now the School for the Arts, which is nice, but at the time it was a dump. I'm pretty sure most of us have diseases from the asbestos that we breathe in there. And then this church, this, this physical place, I've buried and baptized, and I professed faith literally right there. And now I get to stand up here. What a strange season the Lord has called me into to be a part of that. But those places aren't the church. They're important. It's you people. It's you. And each of you in your own way has ministered to us preciously. And I appreciate every single moment that I've had with you, as does my family. And so we pray God's greatest blessings upon you. The thing about the kingdom of God is that there are no goodbyes. 
Paul said, some of you won't see my face again. That may be true. Because each of us will only live a very short time. But that's not because we won't be back. So we pray that we will indeed see you again. But there are no goodbyes in the kingdom of God. We're moving to another room. Not another kingdom. And so we're blessed to be a part of that with you. So may the Lord encourage you all as we part ways for now with all of the love and heart that we can muster. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I do bless you for the message that you have shared with all of us. That Lord, we are people who have been rescued by your grace. And Lord, we each possess different gifts and leanings and talents and opportunities that you actually employ We pray, Lord, that you would make us indeed a people who look at the world through tears, who, Lord, are able to offer arguments. And Lord, let the chief of those be that which wins our hearts again and again. May your grace, Lord, wrap us up, hold us, and enfold us, we pray. Would you bless this beautiful congregation? I thank you, Lord, even as mentioned here, for the elders, so precious to me. And I pray that you would strengthen in these days and weeks to come, Lord. Rise us all to the surface, Lord, where we realize we've all got a part here. What a special privilege it is. Remind us, Lord, what you think of the church. Oh, how you love her. Oh, how you love each one here. Use that, Lord, to indeed lead us to thy face, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.